Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Richard L. Davis about his book, From War Horses to Plowshares, the later Tong reign of Emperor Ming Zong. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you. Richard, I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Uh, sure. I, uh, I went to Princeton for graduate school, and I taught at Brown University for about 17 years. Before that, at Duke for about five years. And then at about 55, I went to Hong Kong. I've been teaching in Hong Kong for the past uh, 10 years. And so I just retired from Lingnan University in Hong Kong. But I've been trained in uh, middle period Chinese history. So I've written about five books on the middle period uh, and two on the 12th, 13th century, the Southern Song period. Uh, and then afterward, I started to go back to the uh, 10th century five dynasties. Uh, and so this is now my third book on uh, the five dynasties, which includes a translation of uh, something called the historical records of the five dynasties. It's a uh, sort of an 11th century history of the 10th century. And this book, uh, From All Horses of Plowshares, you know, there's a lot of data in my translation that can be used as a sort of primary source for understanding the period a little better. So what I do is I actually have um, uh, this book, uh, short, my translation, which is about 750 pages long, has a lot more sort of detail. This is a kind of a compliment also to that uh, translation that I did about 10 years ago. Okay. Now, you talk about the five dynasties. I was wondering, for the benefit of our audience, if you could explain a bit what that is and what makes that period so distinct from the dynasty uh, that preceded it and the period that is uh, that was going to follow in the in the 10th and 11th centuries common era. Exactly. Yeah, the Tang versus the Song period. The Tang mm-hmm. period preceded the five dynasties, right? Mm-hmm. And then the Song period followed. And five dynasties is only uh, 60 years. But I've often said that, you know, these short periods in Chinese history are often really epical. If you think of it, the first unifier of China, the Qing dynasty, right, only had two reigns, right? It lasted all of 40 years. But it changed the history of China, right? It created the first dynasty. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and, the, and, and uh, this is another period where you have uh, a division, and, and, and even though you have one short dynasty after another, right, there are ten, ten, five uh, senior dynasties that ruled in that period. You have a major uh, shift. You sort of overturn the Tang dynasty on the one hand. So you have a move from a kind of aristocracy in Tang period to a kind of uh, meritocracy starting in the 11th century. And the five dynasties is this transition from aristocratic rule to meritocratic rule. And the Song period is known for being a meritocracy. Five dynasties is important in terms of understanding you have military men on top of power, and in some ways they sort of over, they overhaul the court, but they also have a huge impact on regional governance and stuff like that. The extent to which when the Song dynasty emerges in nine, after 960, uh, you have a whole new society. 
new power structure at the top, but also a society below. Um, and um, and I, what's sort of interesting is that most Chinese historians don't talk about the five dynasties. Why? Because they don't want to be reminded that there are periods in Chinese history where China is divided. Mm-hmm. Right? Because they want to think China has always been united, right? <laughs> it's a great myth. Actually, if you go back to you know, uh, uh, 1000 BC, you have from 1000 BC to uh, to uh, to uh, to uh, the beginning of our uh, this era, you have a, almost a, a 500 years of division, political division. The next uh, millennium, uh, you have several centuries of division as well uh, between the Han Dynasty and the Tang Dynasty. So, uh, and then the five dynasties is a shorter period of, of disunion, but it's also uh, very very important. But precisely because. I know it's a reminder of this. Uh, history, you know, the Chinese go back and forth; they unify and then they fall apart, and then they unify again. Uh, and so, uh, what I was surprised when I started working with this period is that Hulda was written in Chinese, uh, the Five Dynasties. And later, I sort of realized that's why. So, I thought it was really important as a Westerner who doesn't isn't saddled by these problems, right? you know, <laughs> you know, so I was able to sort of, so I was, I was surprised to find this book on Mingzong uh, is actually the first book in any language, nothing in Japanese, uh, nothing in Chinese, the first full length book on this guy. And I said, why is it that, you know, this all, you know, this 10th century, you know, it was a huge vacuum. Like, there's this historical translation, big translation also, uh, something that, um, it wasn't done before. And later I realized that has a lot to do with the fact that the 10th century is a period of division. And people in China don't want to be reminded of that. If you think of the 20th century, right? China, there was also division right after, you know, uh, the Qing Dynasty fell in the 1920s and 1930s, the warlord period in China, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and even though it was a short period, it was also military men running the country, right? And you know, China says, "Oh, these are just aberrations." <laughs> but at the same time, if you think of China today, the biggest fear today about if communism falls, will China fragment? Uh, and 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 often people say, "We hate the communist system, but we're afraid of what might ha- might replace it." After all, look what happened in the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. That wasn't that long ago, right? So, uh, so this is one of, one of the things I've done a lot of work on is working on periods of division. So uh, uh, recently, more recently, in the past 15 years, I've been working on the five dynasties. But I, I had two books um, in my early career on the Southern Song, which is the, you know from 1130 until uh, 1270, uh, 75. And the Southern Song is also uh, division, right? Mm-hmm. The Jurchen the conquered North China, and then you have uh, the Song people moving to the south. Uh, 150 years of division. Uh, and the southern Song is very prosperous and stuff like that. Um, and uh, so I had written actually two books on the southern Song. So this has actually been a, a, a sort of a long-standing interest of mine, mm-hmm. sort of looking at these periods of division and sort of understanding, you know, what makes them work. But also, you know, obviously there are problems as well. But I think they actually preside over a lot of important changes in any case. Uh, and when China unifies under after the Song period, the Mongols, right, who mm-hmm. imposed union uh, unification upon China, 
Um, but um, but still, you know, it's, it's a hugely important to understand these periods of division as a way of sort of of, of understanding China from kind of more objective way standard as opposed to the kind of way that the political view of China as being a kind of always unified country that never really divides when the fact, of course, uh, division often occurs. Mm-hmm. And yet one of the things that stands out in your book uh, when you're describing uh, Ming Zong's reign is how mm-hmm. it, it seems almost an a, a, a oasis, if you will, of stability and uh, effective governance during all the period of, of tumult that, that, that preceded and then very shortly follow it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was one of the, you know, most, again, most historians in China tend to think of, you know, the, the five dynasties, a period of chaos, and the dynasties are very short lived and stuff like that. Um, uh, but actually, one of the things I sort of point to is largely the changes are largely in the capital. That is, you have one ruler being replaced by another, right? Dynasties are being changed, but actually not a lot of chaos in the countryside. So if you look at uh, this period, transition from Tang to Song period, uh, at the end of the Tang, there are lots of regional military governors who are taking power and challenging central authority and stuff like that. And there's about 20 years or 30 years of war uh, starting in the late uh, sort of 9th century, uh, and into the early 10th century, but it's again 20 to 30 years. And then after the five dynasties, after the so-called later Liang Dynasty, after the Liang Dynasty, uh, you essentially have um, uh, just changes of leaders, military leaders in the capital, but not really chaos in the countryside. Uh, and it's a succession of, of, you could say, military coups. Uh, so, uh, so that's also in some ways, that's the other reason why we had the perception is that it's unstable, but in fact, in reality is the instability is very much concentrated, uh, in the capital that probably didn't have much of an impact on the lives of people sort of living away from the capital. But, but in any case, the, the plus also is that we have some wonderful rec- uh, documents for this period that were compiled during the early Song period, that is. Uh, the 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 late tenth uh, and early eleventh century, uh, and uh, so there's, I was just amazed. I, it was just so much material that I was able to work with, and um, and that's really if you work with the Tang period, it's a lot harder. There are fewer sources, but uh, but the Song period, there's lots of sources, and the Five Dynasties is something in between, a lot more than the Tang period but not nearly as much as the song. But in any case, the, you know, it, there's a good body of primary materials to work with as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that's uh, reflected in where you draw from when you're uh, talking about what's going on uh, during uh, Ming Zong's reign. Uh, yes. I was wondering if we could go back a bit and, and sure. uh, understand a bit about him. Uh, he was born, uh, am I pronouncing this correctly, Li Xuan? Lisa Yuan, yes. Yuan. And, and, and how it is that he comes to uh, become the uh, emperor of China? Yeah, well, it's, you know, during this period, a lot of military coups. Essentially, he has a coup against uh, his uh, sort of adopted, or you could maybe foster brother or adopted brother, something like that. Um, uh, but, uh, and he's older, because his adopted brother is 40, 
43 when he's overturned, 42 actually, when he's overturned. Uh, and he's 60 when he comes to power. Um, but, uh, but of course, he always says, the military made me do it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> one of the major, what's interesting is this, this happened in the Sung period as well. The founder of the Sung dynasty said the same thing. I didn't really do it, so it was the military that forced me to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they put the robes on my, on my back. I had no choice. Um, but there is, this happened a number of times in the Five Dynasty period. So it may have happened, because we had lots of stories of lesser men as well, where you know, the armies would try to force them to do things that they didn't want to do necessarily. So what happened was this is a guy who, you know, his, you know the founder of the dynasty, uh, who uh, you know, I've, I've written about in Chinese. I haven't published my, my book in, in English not out yet. But the founder of the dynasty... Uh, was only in power for three years, and he was a great conqueror, but not a very good ruler. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and then Ming Zong comes along, and he's actually the opposite. You know, he's someone who isn't educated, right? He can't read Chinese very much. You know, he, he can't probably read Chinese. He can he discuss things in Chinese a bit, but you know, he's someone who was born in China, but not really educated. So, um, uh, so he's sort of marginally, edu- marginally literate, and yet he turns out being a, a, a first-rate emperor. And I mentioned that even you know, you know, the rivals to the north and south all say that you know he's a very impressive person. So, um, and and there was this perception, even at, at a time clearly that this was an exceptional period uh, where you know the economy was stable. Uh, the the emperor was frugal, uh, and he tried not to use uh, not to go to war very much, uh, and so and that's why I had this passage with him talking with this prime minister about soldiers, and he eventually says this. The title comes from right uh, from War Horses to Plowshares. Comes from this this statement paper said to fatten my horses, I have to starve my people. Right, <laughs> that would be a real shame. So it's a wonderful line, and of course I was playing on this line from the Bible, right? They shall, you know, uh, 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 they shall with their beats their their plows into they shall beat their spears into plowshares or something like that. I study war no more. Mm-hmm. The line from the Bible. So, uh, so I sort of so I had this line from Mings on the one hand. And then uh, there's also this biblical allusion in this sort of as well, but it was sort of fun writing uh, because it was because he's such an interesting character. Mm-hmm. And then again, it's a neglected period; people really don't work very much with this period. Um, and um, and but also, as I said, you know, he's in some ways far more complex than anyone expected. Uh, for you know, in some ways, I would say an accidental emperor, like. Mm-hmm. He was not. He was not born to become emperor. Um, and then, of course, the tragedy is that you know the sort of fights over succession when he dies, and eventually the dynasty only lasts two years after he dies. His background isn't even you know 100 percent ethnic Chinese. He's actually uh, from a Turkic background, isn't he? Exactly. Yes. Yes. So this is the other interesting thing. These people, the Shatoa Turks, were the small group of Turks who probably uh, lives somewhere in Xinjiang province today, central to southern Xinjiang, okay? And these were uh, people who were related to uh, 
Turkish uh, people who had sort of come to China in the Tang period. Uh, and then the Tang capital had lots of Turks. That's made as much as 100,000 Turks during the Tang period. So the Tang had very good relations with Turks. He used the Turks to fight wars and sort of stuff like that. And that's why, you know, you see that, you know, this guy also has his, you know, and his father, his adopted father also had this affinity for the Tang, the eccentric they want to restore the Tang namesake. I call themselves the, they actually call themselves the Tang, the eccentric Tang. Later historians use the word later Tang. But actually, back then, they just called it the Tang, and they called it a kind of resuscitation of the Tang period. So, uh, so there was this great affinity for the Tang. And the Tang were very good at using uh, these barbarians to sort of fight their wars. And then the Shatoa is a very small group of Turks uh, that turned up being really great warriors. Uh, and then they ruled over three dynasties. The later Tang is the first. And then there's something called the later Jin dynasty. And then there's something called later Han dynasty, but uh, uh, but they were also um, Shatoa, ruled by different tribes of Shatoa, but the same sort of group. And then what happens after the Song period? They disappear. So that's one of the other things I've been fascinated by is why is it that you have certain minority peoples like like the Mongols, for example, right? The mm-hmm. Mongols conquered China, uh, and and yet they. Uh, and even after they lose China, they are still around. They survive as a group, as an ethnic group, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, um, the Shatoa, did, that didn't happen. And um, the, you, know, you think of, right, uh, uh, go to Xinjiang today, right? And you also have these nomadic peoples who are allied with Mongols and sort of stuff like that. And they're also still around today. But the Shatoa Turks, already by the end of the Song period, already by the 12th, 13th centuries, uh, had disappeared. And, um, and my belief is really religion. I think um, they didn't, on the one hand, they didn't have their own writing system, but on the other hand, they didn't have uh, their own religion either. Uh, and uh, if you look at the, you know, the, uh, the Uyghurs to, uh, already by uh, the 12th, century, uh, they, they were uh, um, uh, Muslim. So you have, uh, you know, and that's what keeps them distinctive, right? The fact mm-hmm. that they have a religious, a distinct religion. Um, and uh, if I was uh, in China, in Kaifeng, back in the 1980s, and I ran to a Jewish guy, he says they're from eight Jewish tribes who came to Kaifeng in the 11th century to trade and guess what? They're still around. Like a thousand years later, they're still in Kaifeng. Why? Uh, because they had a synagogue up into the 19th century. So they had religious practices that separated them. And there were, of course, uh, Muslims around as well. And they had a mosque of their own. Uh, and that, of course, the Chinese confused them because they were both non-pork eaters, right? <laughs> so the Chinese didn't, thought the Jews were actually Muslims. But, but in any case, they were. But the religion, the ritual, right, uh, make helped them sort of keep their identity, their autonomy, and stuff like that. And I think this is the one thing that they didn't have. These people, they didn't have their own uh, distinct religion. Mm-hmm. And Islam hadn't made it to China yet. You mentioned in the book that Ming Zong was not a very religious person, but he was very superstitious. 
Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that was the other thing that was very interesting, right? The, 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 this is uh, true for most of the Shatwa people, that they're, 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 you, know, you have a lot of sort of early sort of pantheistic kinds of religious beliefs and stuff like that. But, uh, and you have some, uh, uh, you know, Manichaeism and sort of stuff like that that, was, that comes to China and the Tang period. And you see evidence of that. Uh, but at the same time, uh, they're not even big on Buddhism, you know. And the women often are Buddhist, but the Shatwa men who are rulers, who are leaders, most of them are not really are ardent Buddhists. Um, and if you look at uh, another group of Turks who conquered China, uh, uh, they call the Tor- Torba Turks, uh, back in the 4th and 5th century, uh, those people were... Uh, were quite, uh, 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 they were very religious. They were Buddhist, and they built lots of Buddhist temples and statues and stuff like that. Uh, and the Shatwa were very different, you know. Uh, and they, uh, and, that's, and I don't know exactly why they weren't very religious, but they weren't. And the, the contrast is really quite striking because these are people, right, who conquered China, the Toba Turks, right, centuries before the Shatwa did. But, uh, you know, the Toba was very religious. Uh, and the opposite for the Shatwa. And I think that actually is maybe hugely important in terms of uh, uh, for their sort of assimilation into China. But at the point of, of the uh, 10th century that were, uh, yes. that Ming Zong's uh, uh, lived most of his life, they're distinct primarily because of their uh, identity as uh, these borderland warriors. Yes, exactly, exactly. And, and um, go no go ahead yes um, so they uh, because I mentioned remember the Tang period they used northerners to fight wars the the Tang emperors even used the Shatwa to fight some of the wars back in the eight eighties uh, and nineties so uh, so they were ruling clients really of the Chinese state initially during the Tang period. Uh, and they, you know, and then they, they have their own autonomy, their own, you know, independence. And at the same time, there is this kind of prestige that the Tang Dynasty has uh, that they uh, subscribe to. But uh, but also, I mentioned, uh, if you look at this period, the, there's a dynasty in the South called the Southern Tang. So the late, you know, the, the Tang that I'm studying is called the later, the later Tang. But there's also a Southern Tang uh, down in the South. <laughs> which also at the same time, uh, but they were also trying to revive the Tang namesake and stuff. So there was such pre- the Tang dynasty after it was overthrown had so much prestige, and people were get, wanting to re- sort of restore it and stuff like that. Uh, and it was partly uh, because the Tang was very good at you know uh, drawing in the barbarians by letting giving them adopted names and sort of stuff like that. Um, but, uh, uh, but they were, you know, they were very good and initially manipulating, but often, you know, just, you know, if you can't, uh, beat them, uh, hire them. <laughs> That's what the time did. <laughs> hire them to fight their wars, essentially. Yeah. The, the the parallel that that struck me was uh, what happened during the Roman Empire during the imperial period when they had all of the, uh, the what the Romans called barbarians coming in and how the Romans would oftentimes employ them to fight their wars. So oftentimes they were just barbarians fighting under an imperial standard against barbarians who happened to be the Johnny-come-latelys. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Very, very strong parallel. So the uh, I want to uh, go back and, and, and visit a bit more detail how exactly uh, Lee uh, Xuan uh, came to power. Uh, you mm-hmm. uh, and I was wondering if you could tell us a bit what was going on with uh, the uh, emperor whom he replaced, uh, the emperor uh, Zhuang Zong. Zhuang Zong. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. I mean, I have a, a, a portrait of it. We don't have a portrait of of. Uh, of Ming Zong, the only official portrait in in the palace museum I have in the book is is of his predecessor Zhuang Zong. But that's good in of itself, right? We at least we have one portrait of mm-hmm. we have a sense of what a Shaozhou person looked like, right? But uh, but so Zhuang Zong is a dynastic founder, uh, and and he was an amazing warrior. You know, he started out with. A satrap, a satrapy the size of maybe northern Shanxi, a half of a province, really, uh, and uh, and on the margins, right near the border, but uh, very much removed from China. Uh, and that, when his father died, that's all he really had, very very small. And then and he was, but he was an um, amazing warrior on the one hand, uh, but he was very smart. But you know, the other guys in the Five Dynasties period would would attack and conquer the Liang Dynasty, which preceded the Tang. The, the Liang Dynasty founder essentially went around conquering, went from one state to another conquering, and eventually unified North China through conquest. But then the Shato were a lot smarter. They didn't have huge numbers. Most historians estimate that there were probably less than 100,000 Shato at the peak of their power. Uh, and maybe even less than that, maybe sixty or eighty thousand. Okay, so these were very very small numbers. So they couldn't conquer, you know, with force. Uh, so what they did is, you know, they uh, a series of alliances. They were very successful. You know, they would, uh, you know, when when one guy would run into trouble with a tongue uh, with a young government, uh, they would send military to assist, and then turn this guy into an ally. And they created lots of alliances, essentially. Uh, and that's what happened. You know, the dynasty, the later town was founded by a, this very smart guy who, on the one hand, was a great warrior, but he was also great at putting together this amazing federation of really, you know, essentially military governors, right, mm-hmm. who essentially uh, came under his sway because he was so uh, pervasive. And he let them keep their local uh, satraps and sort of stuff like that. So that was the other thing that he was able to uh, give them a lot of local autonomy until you know he eventually unified the country. But he, uh, but he was also, but that was it. That they were very good warriors, uh, but they were also very smart. Um, and uh, and but that was uh, uh, the beginning of the time, the later time period. But then uh, the problem was, of course, you know, this guy was very gifted in everything but uh, governing. And so he, he was sort of insensitive uh, to, you know, uh, to, he, he became, it's very weird. He was someone who was born and raised in China. The founder was Li Chuanxu, Zhuangzong. Uh, and yet at the same time, once he became emperor, he sat down hunting and doing all these nomadic things. He sort of uh, worked so hard at conquering China. And then once he conquered China, he insisted on being a barbarian again. And so there was also these frictions between, you know, his the people around him. Mingzong was very different because, you know, he pretty much accommodated 
you know, Chinese culture. He respected mm-hmm. Chinese culture. He hired some very good advisors, uh, and then um, and uh, he and he was uh, very att- sort of attentive and stuff like that. Very interesting mm-hmm. in that regard. That he was very uh, effective ruler. I think part of it has to do with age. That he was sixty when he came to power, right? So at sixty, you're not adding to money. Wealth, you know, money, wealth doesn't mean anything to you as much. So this, he was so much more so mature uh, than the founder of the, of the dynasty was. Um, but in any case, because the founder uh, was uh, not very popular as a leader, even though, in fact, he wasn't an evil person. I mean, you know, the previous Liang dynasty had a founder who was just mean, and he went around raping women randomly, including the prime minister's wife and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. This is what you had in the five, some of the five, five dynasties. The, the, you have these military governors who become very, very powerful, uh, and then they, uh, uh, they're very insensitive to people around them. Uh, and, and this guy, Zhuang Zhong, was not that bad, actually. You know, uh, he was a, a little irresponsible in the sense that, you know, he hunted too much. He was constantly out hunting and stuff. But I, on the other hand, you know, um, I think, you know, the, his problem was just that his nephew, his his foster brother, really, his foster brother, Li Yuan, was much more appealing person. And that was the thing. You know, in the Song period, they often went to, in this period, 10th century, they often went to more appealing people. This is why when the Song period was established at the end of the Five Dynasties, the founder of the Song Dynasty was also a governor in the military, essentially. He was a military leader. A six-year-old became emperor, and then they said, Five Dynasties is this period of chaos. You can't have kids running a country. So essentially, the military forced uh, the founder of the Song Dynasty to become emperor. Uh, but so, uh, so that's sort of the other thing, you know, because of this period, uh, uh, you know, what you could tolerate in any other period in Chinese history, you couldn't tolerate during the five dynasties and immature emperors is one of those things. So, uh, so that's why in some ways, I think Ming Zong was very successful because, uh, he was so, uh, mature, mm-hmm. uh, as, as an individual, but then he had also this rich of, military experience because he was really probably one of the best, most heralded warriors of the, of the later time as well. So when there, uh, when these rebellions are, uh, rebellions, but these, uh, you know, uprisings, these, uh, for lack of a better word, mutinies are taking place in, uh, 925, 926, they're looking for somebody who is in, uh, some respects, the opposite of the sitting emperor, they're looking for somebody who, you know, has that, you know, sense yeah. of, you know, more maturity, more responsibility. And uh, Li Xuan was that person because of his experience, because they knew him. And so they were, they, they felt that he was the guy to, to serve the job. Correct? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and, uh, and that's why, you know, he was so, uh, you know, like Austin said, in Central Asia, most uh, they often elected their leaders. You know, Mongols, for example. Most you remember uh, Genghis Khan and Kublai Khan. Mm-hmm. They were all elected, assisted by by tribal leaders. 
and that's you know that's a tradition, and, and you you have it in the Five Dynasties period as well, uh, in the in the Tang, and in the Song period. Um, and uh, it was sort of a lot smarter in a lot of ways because they realized that they couldn't have immature in China. Father and son succession, you're going, always going to end up with young kids, right? Teenagers or or even younger, right? Uh, and in China, it doesn't matter because you have a whole bureaucracy there to govern for him until he becomes emperor. Uh, but in uh, and, and Central Asia, it'd be a disaster if you had you know a kid becoming Khan. So there, so in most of those cultures, uh, you know. Uh, uh, you know, it was groups of leaders, you know, local leaders who decided who their um, khan should be. And Meshatur uh, started out doing the same thing. Although by the time they ruled China, they actually moved to other son succession. But that was probably fairly recent. And most most other inter-Asian groups, the Khitan was a very powerful group during the 11th and 12th centuries in China, north of China. And the Kitana also practiced um, initially, uh, they, they had sort of sibling, sometimes even uh, cousins succeeding uh, a ruler uh, before they moved from the you know next generation or sort of stuff like that. So, so I think part of the period, this period really required, uh, but you know, mature leadership and, and stuff, experience leadership. Uh, and uh, so, uh, so that was the other thing I think uh, they were, you know, it was sort of normal for them when they were dissatisfied with the existing ruler to look to, to a sibling. And this, in his case, he was adopted or foster son. So he wasn't necessarily part of the biological lineage, but he had an association that helped exactly. him to stand out. Well, exactly, yeah. Well, that explains how he uh, what, you know, eventually emerged as the emperor. How was he able to rule so successfully? Well, you know, I think uh, one of the things that's very interesting, if you look at the five dynasties, uh, compared to other periods of minority rule in China, if you look at Mongols, when they come to China, three centuries later, right? Uh, they, you know, they separated the Chinese population from uh, the Mongol population. 50% of the offices had to go to Mongols. Uh, and the Mongols ally with other inner Asians to rule China. Uh, so that's, you know, so it was all a part of a structure really of, 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 of sort of prejudice really against the Chinese sort of population in order to control them, right? To prevent uh, Mongols becoming Sinophites, okay? And then um, uh, this is the Qing dynasty, the Manchu dynasty was the same. You know, Beijing, you know, if you look at Beijing, you know, the city, not only could Manchu is not very uh, Chinese, but they, the housing in Beijing was segregated, segregating Manchus from Chinese and stuff like that. And that only stopped in the 19th century when it sort of started to fall apart. So, and then you have the five dynasties uh, and the, the Shator dynasties that rule North China don't segregate. They don't give special privileges to their own people. Uh, they don't ban uh, marriage. Uh, they uh, they actually encourage their children to learn uh, Chinese. Even you know, remember Mingzhou has this conversation with his son where he says, "Don't become too literate." Okay, 
But he says, <laughs> nothing wrong with, and he said, he says, I occasionally have an interest in, you know, reading the class, keep about classics and stuff like that. But uh, he does also want to encourage his sense of being too uh, literate in Chinese. Um, but the main thing is that they embrace Chinese culture. Uh, and this is what's special about this period is that it's one period in minority rule in, Ch- in China where essentially there's no separation or, you know, of the ruler and ruler, right? And there's no spe- apportioning of special privileges for uh, the ruling group. Uh, and initially you start out with a conquest of China and they have a lot more sort of inner Asian uh, people, not just Shaqua, but other people from inner Asia. Uh, and then by the time you get to uh, the last decade, before uh, that's from roughly nine fifteen to nine twenty three, that period, uh, you have mostly uh, Chinese leading armies. So, so they were they were, they were using Chinese to conquer uh, China, North China, uh, but they were also eventually they used them in government and stuff like that. Uh, there was no structure of bias in any case uh, in place uh, during that period, and that's also I think. Very, very special, you know. So we tend to think of periods of minority rule as being periods of oppression, right? Mm-hmm. But in fact, this was very different. So every period is sort of different. If you look at the, during the mention, I mentioned the Tuba, the Toba Turks, right, who ruled back in the fourth century. They started out trying to segregate housing and discourage immigrants and stuff like that, and then they end up becoming very Chinese in the end. But they ruled China for about uh, one and a half centuries. So by the end, they were very much uh, Chinese. And yet for all of the stability of uh, his rule among the various interest groups within uh, China at that time, he did also have to deal, though, with what you describe as a volatile frontier. Exactly, yes. And, you know, there was... Because uh, at the time, you know, I mentioned... I talk about the, the major rival was uh, the Khitan, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Khitan were long-term very successful because they established their own dynasty, the Liao dynasty. Uh, they, the Liao dynasty was from roughly uh, 10, uh, I guess it was around 940-something up until 12, uh, up until uh, uh, 11.26 or something like that, up until the Jurchen conquered them. So the you know they have a year a century and a half of a, of their own dynasty uh, north of the Great Wall, uh, and the Northern Song never conquers the regions north of the Great Wall. It's all controlled by the Khitan. And so during the five dynasties, though, the Shatou were militarily far superior. And whenever they there were a number of wars fought between the Shatou and the Khitan, and usually Ming Zhou often led the you know the battles against them. And he was usually very successful. So, you know, the Khitan started out as military inferior to the Shatua. But eventually, you know, the Shatua ruled China. Mm-hmm. The Shatua become assimilated into China. Uh, and then the, the Khitan were lucky in some ways, maybe smart. But they decided they're not going to rule China. They're just going to keep the northern borderlands, right? Mm-hmm. And that allowed them to last a lot longer. So maybe if they had, if the Shatou had done the same thing and stayed, uh, you know, along the northern, uh, the sort of the southern um, uh, 
stretches of the Great Wall, right, as opposed to, you know, moving to Chinese capitals, right? In this case, they moved to Luoyang and created a, you know, a Chinese dynasty uh, that may have lasted a lot, a lot longer. So, uh, so this is where, in some ways, you know, there were, you know, the Shikitan were the biggest enemy uh, and had big, massive uh, 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 armies and stuff like that. Um, and they move very fast and stuff. Uh, but still, the Shikitan were very smart, at least for up, up, and, up and through Ming Zong's reign. But then after that, uh, you know, it's the opposite. You know, the Kitan get stronger, and the subsequent dynasties aren't militarily as uh, uh, strong as, as the, the, the later Tang dynasty is. I, that does Changes. get that, that does get to the, uh, the, this interesting challenge, I think, for a lot of those uh, a lot of those uh, borderland peoples, which is if the appeal of conquering uh, China is to become in con- uh, part of this gigantic civilization, and, yeah. and, which is very sophisticated, which has very appeal, uh, you know, great appeal, and, and you can see it with the constant uh, assertions uh, uh, with you know the Jurchen and, and the Manchu later on as well about how you know you must not you know be seduced into becoming Chinese. That it, it's it's sort of one of those uh, you know situations where it, it's the, the the attraction is, is so great that. You know, if you're going to conquer it, why resist anyway? But at the same time, yeah, 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 exactly. By 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 becoming assimilated, they lose the very dynamic that has allowed them to conquer in the first place. Their 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 uh, their warrior uh, skills, their their you know the regional ruggedness that 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 the that uh, the more settled Chinese didn't seem to have. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So. Um, so I think that's why, you know, if, when the Manchus came along, they created, you know, Manchuria was, you know, <clears throat> was their homeland. They went back every summer to Manchuria. Uh, they went uh, every winter to Manchuria. Uh, they, um, they um, you know, and, and they were hunting and all that kind of stuff. Also, you know, Manchuria, uh, Chinese people could not settle there. For over the first 200 years of the, of the Qing Dynasty, uh, and uh, it's a very strict bands, and that's why in the 20th century, I'm not sure if you know, when the Japanese invaded China, starting in the 1930s, they started in Manchuria. Why? It had a very low population because you know the Manchus didn't allow Chinese people to settle there for 200 years, right? When China's population was growing everywhere but Manchuria, right? <laughs> so. Uh, so there was a, so that was you know so that was a, maybe the Manchus learned from that experience and they uh, kept going back to their homeland. The thing that is very interesting, uh, uh, the founder of the dynasty, I mentioned Zhuangzong, who was in power for three years. He created three capitals, two capitals north of the Yellow, uh, the, uh, Yellow River, and yet he never went there. He went there for like uh, probably once to one of the capitals. But not the homeland. The homeland was in northern Shanxi, okay, and he was Taiyuan today. And he didn't, uh, he never went back to Taiyuan when he was emperor. Li Siyuan is emperor for eight, almost eight years. He doesn't go back to Taiyuan either. And think of that again, the Manchus are going back to Manchuria, right? Twice, three times a year. 
you know, that's and that's for long periods. Of, uh, and then they had shorter stays as well. So uh, it was very, very different. So I think in the, uh, the Chateau, maybe they were sort of naive. <laughs> I'm not mm-hmm. sure. But certainly, I think uh, their experience convinced the Manchus later that they had to do it differently. So, uh, so that's actually so why it's also important to understand this period, because later on, uh, you know, you know, the uh, people aspiring to do the same thing are going to uh, approach it very, very differently. Uh, one of the things I did, I wrote part of the Cambridge History of China, Song Dynasty, volume, volume five. Uh, and, uh, and one of the things I was sort of fascinated by is, it, is why it took the Mongols 45 years to conquer the Southern Song. When everyone says the Southern Song was the weakest empire around, right? Mm-hmm. But even the thing, the Mongols uh, took, what, 20 years to conquer Russia? Okay. <laughs> uh, they were there. The Southern Song was a historically long uh, uh, thing. One of the reasons why was for 20 years, they kept trying to attack Sichuan uh, and a kind of Western strategy. And they kept, and eventually a Mongol ruler named Manka. I think it was around uh, just before he was a predecessor of Kublai. So he died around uh, uh, 1260. He died in Sichuan fighting this battle, trying to conquer China from the West. Uh, And afterward, when Kublai became emperor, he decided to conquer from the East, which is where the southern Song capital was in Hangzhou. From the East instead, he changed the strategy. But why is it that the Mongols started with a 20-year strategy of conquering the southern Song from the West. It was because the Shatoa, back in the 10th century, did that. They conquered, they, they, they managed to conquer Sichuan, and Sichuan fell very easily. And the Mongols thought, oh, well, if the Shatoa could do it so easily, then we should do it as well. <laughs> but that's the other reason why you have to, if you understand the theory, you sort of realize a lot of what, you can understand why people made certain kinds of choices later on. Mm-hmm. Whether it's the Manchus, right, choosing to go out to Manchuria on a regular basis, or whether it's the Mongols taking the Sichuan first strategy, right, yeah. which was a disaster eventually, and it took them that long to to finally sort of abandon it. But uh, but that's why you know, it's, but it's a, that's why it's sort of surprisingly understood, little understood, despite the fact that it's really really important the Tai Dynasty's period. Why is it that? Ming Song's uh, reign uh, doesn't re- result in a longer period of political stability. Well, you know, it's <laughs> uh, it's sort of it's very tragic. Uh, he's uh, succeeded by uh, uh, someone who's about eighteen or nineteen years old. So he's sixty, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, but his successor is only 18 or 19. So, uh, and the reality is actually he did have sons who were in their 30s, uh, who were much better. And, uh, and there was a very well-known son named Li Chongjing. And, uh, and Li Chongjing uh, had a, a great military record. Uh, and, uh, but, and he was uh, initially in the capital uh, when the when his father's army rebelled against the government, and the emperor killed him, the emperor Zhongzong killed him. So the sad thing is that actually Ming Zhong lost his best 
son uh, would have been a lot older as well. But everyone said, no, all the sources say he was a wonderful person. Uh, and uh, and one of the things that's really very fascinating is actually at the after his father rebels and he has a chance to leave. Uh, and rather than uh, flee, he actually goes back to court because he, he's loyal to Emperor Zhuangzong. Even though his even though his father sort of in rebellion, so there's this wonderful I mentioned Ouyangshou's historical record of the five dynasties, which I translated. Um, Ouyangshou has this wonderful commentary about you know how wonderfully loyal this guy was. So, but you get a sense that this, if he had been succeeded by some of the older sons who passed away early, uh, it would have been very very different. So that was the sort of tragedy. He came to power. Uh, in a coup and end up losing his most valuable son. So a lot of the same dynamics that led to his rise to power basically were still at very much at play. And and I was I was struck by yeah. you know, how you, the way you were portraying uh, his his final uh, months that he did start to seem to be a bit of an old man in a hurry as as he was uh, as he yeah. was starting to suffer from various ailments and he's really trying to get everything in place because he knows that it's not going to be easy and it turns yeah, out that exactly. events bear him out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then eventually it's his uh, you know his I mentioned he's succeeded by his youngest uh, by not his oldest surviving son who I mentioned 18 at the time. Uh, but then he's uh, only in power for six months. And then there is uh, this uh, uh, adopted son of Ming Song who's in his 40s. And then, and he's someone who's much more popular with the military. So eventually he purges Ming Song's uh, legal heir and becomes emperor himself, but only for two years. Um, and the w- wonderful thing, very interesting about this, uh, this guy, uh, his name is uh, Li Tongka. Uh, Tongka is, is, is a Chinese, but he was adopted by Ming Zong at seven years old. And, uh, and, and so he was a very acculturated chateau. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and, uh, and the one time this is when it's actually, there's a guy who had a Chinese body, but a chateau personality, you know, <laughs> that his behavior, you know, that he was just, you know, like we think of like the barbarians coming into China and assimilating. But there are exceptional cases where you actually have, you know, Chinese who become assimilated into barbarian ways. This is a this guy was one of those. Li Chongka was himself uh, a very sort of chateauized uh, Turk, you know. But um, but in any case, uh, this is you know he was very appealing at some level. Uh, but then he also eventually was undermined by uh, someone who was actually the son-in-law of Ming Zong. Eventually, the the dynasty is overturned. Later Tang Dynasty is overturned by the later Jin Dynasty. The later Jin Dynasty is established by uh, uh, Shi Jintang, who is Ming Zong's son-in-law. He's married to uh, uh, to to, uh, to Ming Zong's eldest daughter. So. Um, so it's, it's still sort of in the family, mm-hmm. uh, but there's sort of, sort of these, you know, these very, so Mingzu is very important in the sense that, you know, he cultivated some very important martial talent, right? He was himself a martial talent, but then he also uh, cultivated some very uh, powerful people. Uh, so unfortunately, his son was overturned by one of those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, 
but then you know, so you could say it worked out okay when his eventually his uh, his son-in-law uh, succeeded uh, a couple of years later. But it still was not quite as as stable as he probably aspired exactly. to establish. So exactly, and the and the uh, the son the the son-in-law was only able to to wield power through help by through uh, assistance from the Ketan. The Ketan were able to create an alliance with this guy, but he was in a very weak position. He really became a client of the, of the Ketan. When before when Mingo was in power alive. Uh, when his predecessor was alive, you know, it was the Shatwa who were who were the dominant force in the borderlands. And twenty years later it's very, very different. Um but it is interesting though that you know the that his son does come to power uh and um uh there was also the other one the one at the the very last page, uh there's a, a wonderful story about um um about the the the, the fall of the Liu Tang, and and I mentioned that his his son-in-law is taking over, and his, Ming Zong of course is dead by then. He's been dead for two years, but his wife uh, Miss Tao is still around, uh, and uh, a lot of the woman says, "Oh well, you don't have to worry because your 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 daughter." Is going to be the future empress, <laughs> and she. And, but but then she also said, "No, I, I, you know, I owe that my fealty to the dynasty and my loyalty to my man, my husband." And she insisted on killing herself. She committed suicide rather than outlive the dynasty. So this is wonderful moral moral story at the end, uh, uh, and it's it's you know. So his wife was also. A woman of considerable character in the end, because she had a chance of surviving, and she chose to die with the dynasty instead. Wow, it's hard to believe that uh, a uh, period with such drama has been so overlooked for so long. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I mentioned I've uh, I did this translation called Historical Records of the Five Dynasties, and that, that was published by Columbia. It's in a hard paperback. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's also um, uh, in uh, we also have the well, I think an ebook version or something like that. Most libraries have it. It's not a back ebook, but it's a electronic version that libraries can uh, purchase. Mm-hmm. So um, so it's you know it's only thirty or forty dollars. So it's quite reasonable for a big book like that. So I you know I've done some work on it by but I've been working a lot on my own. You asked me about what I was working on now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, a new book, because I mentioned the founder of the dynasty. I actually wrote a, a biography of him in, in initially in English, and then I published it in Chinese. I didn't think no one would be interested in English reading a book on a guy who was only emperor for three years. So uh, so I published this uh, biography of Zhuangzong in Chinese back in 2009 in Beijing. Uh, and it did wonderfully. The sales were really, really good. Um, and so I, my editor in Hong Kong U Press convinced me to publish the thing in in English. So it's coming out uh, next month, oh, wow. uh, the biography of uh, Zhuangzong, uh, and it's called Fire and Ice, uh, Late Chuanxu and the Founding of the Later Tang. Well, maybe we could it's, have you uh, back. Hong- maybe we could have you back to talk about that book. Okay, wonderful. Sure. 
It's um, it'll be out uh, next month. It should be out later this month, late late uh, August or early September. But it's also published by Hong Kong U Press, and I just really love working with them. They're so efficient. Um, they actually can publish a book in ten months. They they're able to get a book out. This book was published in ten months. Uh, and they do a really good quality job of editing and sort of stuff like that. So I did the, this in my, my recent book is the book that's, uh, coming out soon is, is, uh, this, uh, I think a very nice compliment to the Ming book, looking at the founding emperor, uh, and more, more closely. And, uh, and so, uh, but also too, it turns out I, I, I sort of lucked out. The, the tomb of this guy's father, the member Mingzhu was adopted, right? Mm-hmm. But his adopted father was Li Keyong. Uh, and um, when Li Keyong's tomb in northern Shanxi was uh, discovered about 15 years ago. And uh, only, only about two or three years ago that I realized it had been discovered. Some Japanese scholars actually published the tomb inscriptions and stuff like that. So we actually had not only the tomb, a tomb in northern Shanxi, but we actually have uh, the inscription, a tomb inscription that was inside the tomb. So, uh, so, so that's the other thing that's really sort of wonderful, you know, totally unexpected. This is something I had no idea was even out there. So now he was able to do the English version of the Zhuangzong book, mm-hmm. Fire and Ice, I call it. I decided to actually uh, do that, you know, do something very, you know, to use the, the, these new sources, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and totally unexpected. But this happens in China all the time, right? You're, you know, there's, they're always uncovering things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're big, building a shopping mall, <laughs> and they're uncovering sort of tombs and stuff like that. But this is amazing because it's, this is Li Keyong is a very well known person. I hadn't, hadn't uh, his, you know, I had no idea the tombstone was actually uh, intact. Because usually these, you know, after so many years, right? Mm-hmm. Usually people break in. I know we know that people had broken into the tomb, uh, but the tombstone itself is intact. Wow. So, uh, so that's what's really wonderful too. And this is very recent, right? The mm-hmm. discovery of the tomb and stuff like that. But uh, uh, so I, in my book on Zhuangzong, actually, the English version, I actually include pictures of, of the tomb and stuff wow. in northern Shanxi. Oh. So, but I just it's called Fire and Ice. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, there's this, uh, there's a line from the Zhuang, the, the, which is a classical text, which says, if you, you know, War is something akin to fire. <laughs> it, can, it, can do, it can build an empire. It can also destroy it. So sort of I'm playing on this thing about the, the metaphor of uh, uh, as war is fire and drunk is the conqueror, but also is sort of consumed by the military. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like a great book, and I wish you the best of luck with it. Thank you very much for uh, taking time to speak with us today, and uh, thank you for writing such a fascinating study of such a neglected period. Glad to, to join you. Thank you. <laughs> 